Uh, as always, it is my pleasure and a privilege to open up God's Word with you today. So if you do have your Bibles with you, why don't you open them up with me to the book of Second Corinthians. That's where we're headed this morning. We're headed to chapter 13, if you're flipping to a specific page. Uh, wanted to start there, but also to add some to Stephen's announcements. I uh, just wanted to mention, yeah, he said day camp's coming up. It really is. And the reason you know that is, if you haven't seen it already, go out to the lobby after the service and look at the pile of supplies that are out there uh, making you know, their appearance in the middle of our hallway, practically. Um, so if you think, you know, why is there such a big mess here? Uh, you know, it's, it's not a mess. Those, those are supplies. Those are, uh, those are gospel tools that we're going to use this summer. So it's time to get excited. We've got hundreds of kids coming, and we are excited to serve them and, and point them to Jesus. Uh, so get excited about that. It's time. It's coming fast. And then uh, Pastor Stephen also mentioned the uh, yard sale and what the yard sale is supporting. On one hand, uh, the mission team going to Mexico for the trip. And then also, on the other hand, Johnny and Friends Family Retreat and the team that we're sending uh, from our church to go serve there uh, later on this summer in August. And I just wanted to take a moment to celebrate one person who last week, Johnny and Friends does these family retreats all over the country and actually a couple international as well. There's a lot of them, and there's a great need at each of them for people to sign up to be buddies, to be partnered with someone who has uh, a disability or multiple disabilities, and just be their friend for the week. And so it requires signing up for a whole week of just doing that. And most recently, last week, at the family retreat in Twin Rocks, Oregon, uh, Chelsea got word that they needed somebody last minute to come down and do that. And so she got somebody to watch her kids and went down there and serve for the week. After coming off the school year, and I would be like, I need a break. She went down and served. And so I just wanted to shout her out and hope that her passion and her willingness to serve inspires you to do the same, whatever that looks like for you this summer. But 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that's where we come back to. We, we are actually going to wrap up this study that we've been in since September together, if you've been with us. So this will be our 28th sermon in this text. So as is usual for us, if you've been around at Sunset Bible Church for a while, you've noticed that we tend to preach through entire books of the Bible from beginning to end, covering every verse, every chapter. Um, And so here's the case again. But then in the summertime, we tend to switch it up a little bit, do something a little bit different. Uh, Last summer, if you can remember, we went through 10 weeks in the Psalms after going through all 66 chapters in Isaiah. That took us a while. You remember that? And then in the fall, we kicked off this series, closing it today. And then if you have your bulletins handy close by, go to the back of your bulletin and you'll see what's upcoming this summer, just to whet your appetite a little bit. We are going to be starting a new series called We Believe. And it's going to use the Apostles' Creed as a framework to look at what is it that we believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and what the Bible has to say about that. So we're diving into that next week with a really simple, easy one on the Trinity, Uh, So get excited for that. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. But back to 2 Corinthians. Whether you've been with us for a while or not, we're going to try to put a bow on this study by looking in a very recap form of looking back where we've been, what this letter ultimately is about, what is Paul's point here, and what do we have to learn. So that's going to be the majority of our time. We'll look at this Uh, text at the end of of chapter 13, Paul's closing words, but we're going to do a lot of looking back and recap together. 
But I think it'll be important for us, whether this is the first sermon we've ever heard in 2 Corinthians and the first time we're looking at it, or if we've been here for every sermon since September, to start with a little bit of review. Uh, so you'll see on the review point of your study sheet, uh, very at the very top of your sheet, I hope you'll find that study sheet helpful, uh, the review section, that first point about the city of Corinth. Let's start there. This city, a particular city, it's filled with cultural values that you might expect in the ancient Greek world. We're talking about prideful individualism. It's all about you, individualism. Wealth, prosperity, these things were celebrated and and goals in life. Uh, Religious plurality, so a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Eh, You know, it all kind of works together to form your religion. This is what I believe and what I am. And maybe that sounds a little familiar to you. The I did it my way mentality in Corinth would have made Frank Sinatra blush. This is the city that these believers lived in that Paul wrote to. And they were very much affected by it all. But I bring it up because I want to see if that culture does sound familiar to ours as well. Um, Sports, sex, entertainment, tourism, that was present in Corinth. Whatever you want, you can have. And again, it's all about you. And you think about the American dream. I mean, the American dream is about as prideful and individualistic as it gets. It's about promoting self. And you think about truth and religion. This is religious pluralism in in Corinth. In today's culture, I mean, the standard for truth in our culture today, it's up to the individual to decide what truth is for for himself or herself. And it's based on their, their feelings or their experiences or just their emotions, what's going on presently for them. And these Corinthians were so wrapped up in these human values and human way of thinking and cultural standards for truth that they were welcoming in false teachers and, more importantly, a false gospel in their hearts. And they were doing that because they liked how it sounded. They liked what they had to say better than what Paul had to bring. But see, the problem for Paul was that what he had to bring was the truth, the truth, the true gospel And the true gospel begins with a very humbling fact in a culture ripe with pride, and that is that we are weak. We are weak. Each and every one of us is as frail and weak and common as a clay pot. In case you haven't noticed, we're very, very imperfect. We're worn. We're scuffed up, and it shows Of course, we're scuffed up first and foremost by our own doing, by our own sin. But then also just by walking around some in this world of brokenness, we can get broken by it too and scuffed up. The bottom line reality is we are weak and needy. And very unlike what the American dream would tell us to do, the gospel beckons us not to strap up our bootstraps and laugh in the face of weakness and need, pretending it doesn't exist. But the gospel beckons us to actually linger and live there, to live there very much aware of our weakness and need. For as Paul will say in this letter, being there where we're aware that we're needy, is precisely where God's power is made perfect. You see, the presence of sin and weakness and frailty in our lives, it reminds us that there's something from which we need saving. 
and someone to whom we must look to provide that salvation we need. We need a savior, a savior from sin, and Jesus is the only one who saves. So the more we are in touch with our weakness and need, the better. Because the gospel is not a story about human strength overcoming this world, but of God's strength and power displayed in human weakness on the cross. And what a beautiful thing that is. That is the good news that in our weakness and need, precisely there, God meets us there. The God who we've continually profaned, the God who we've continually sinned against is the God who meets us in our need. This is called grace. Grace. And the most wonderful part about God's grace is that no matter how scuffed up you are, no matter what you have done or how long you've been doing it, you cannot sin your way out of the reach of God's grace if you turn to him in faith. And so the fact that we are scuffed up and messy and dirty and unworthy, that's not something for us to to try really hard to hide, to tuck away and to, to put under the carpet. It's not something for us to put a mask on and to pretend like we're better than we are so that others might not see the ugliness. It's not something we should try really hard to make up for, to atone for, to try to make right somehow with, with good deeds, thinking that if we, if we just do enough good things, if we, if we try hard enough, then surely that will be enough if I do more good than bad. No, the fact that we are weak and needy is something we must lean into regularly to remind ourselves especially and of course all those watching as well that there is a power that transforms and saves needy people. It's the power of the risen Christ. The power of Jesus and only Jesus saves. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? All right, I want to pray and ask for God's help in our time in his word and then we'll read the text together. But first, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do take a deep breath now and pause before we jump into your word together. We pause to thank you for it and to ask you to prepare our hearts to hear from you. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you that in these pages you reveal yourself to us. You don't leave us to guess at what you are like, but you show us and you show us what truth is. And so our prayer this morning is that you would do just that. Use this time to do just that. Show us anew who you are. Plant your truth, the truth you have for each of us. As individuals in this room, I pray for each heart that you open us us up and plant in us the truth you have for us. Use this time to that end. Let my words be yours. Speak in this room. I pray in the name of Jesus, help us. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, if you were with us, in verse 5, and then we'll read through the end of Paul's letter, his words here. This is God's word. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, 
But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there you have it. Paul's closing words in this heartfelt letter. And although within it he has at times been combative, confrontive, and even explosive in doing so, he he didn't pull back many punches, if you can remember. And despite that, as was sprinkled throughout in this letter, you see a picture here in this text into his heart for these people and why he has to be so confrontive. He cares. It's reflected in verse 10. Let's read verse 10 again. It says, For this reason I write these things, while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. For what purpose? For building up and not for tearing down. For building up, he says. This verse is really a a one-sentence summary of Paul's purpose in writing this letter. And he says it wasn't to cause you harm, although at times I had to be uh, aggressive and perhaps severe, I had to confront you on things. But my intention wasn't to cause you harm. It's not to tear you down, but to build you up. And I think his his prayer is reflected, his heart is reflected in that prayer that you see at the the end of verse nine, if you look at that, when he says, your restoration is what we pray for. That's that's the prayer, for restoration. I put on your, your study sheet there that first headline. I hope you find that study sheet helpful. Uh, this first headline, a, a recap, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this letter, kind of recap it together, of Operation Restoration. That's what I'm calling the letter, Operation Restoration. Because uh, that's what Paul says his purpose is in writing. He says his prayer for them is restoration. But what do we mean by this? What, is, what, what do we mean by restoration? Well, you can see that first bullet point there under the headline. Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to interrupt the Corinthians' unhealthy relationships. They had some unhealthy relationships with all kinds of things worldly, but especially with these false teachers and these, this false gospel. And so Paul's intention is to break off their relationship with those unhealthy things and to restore, there's that word, restoration, to restore them to a healthy relationship with the true gospel and the true Jesus. This is what he means when he says that his heart and his prayer for them is for restoration. And in this letter, he does a lot of contending for himself. So you see him talking about himself a lot, his, his identity as a true apostle. That's what he's defending in this letter. Really, the bulk of this letter is about that. 
And it's this incredibly emotional letter because Paul has been deliberately attacked. He's had his credibility attacked, his character attacked again and again. And there was still a contingent that was out to get him, basically. And so Paul bears his heart out on these pages to these people that he cares about. But we, we must understand that, that Paul was not so distraught. He was distraught, but he was not so distraught about them turning away from him, ultimately. He cared more about the fact that in turning away from them, it meant they were turning away from the one he represented. They were turning away from the one true God. And as one who did not grip tightly the things of this world that will only pass away, Paul knew what really mattered most. And he knew what mattered most is whether we're in a right relationship with God or not. That's what matters most. So yes, this this letter is Paul's response, a mission of restoration. But for Paul, it wasn't just in this one case. This was his lifestyle. In fact, he he says as much in chapter five, if you could think back, if you were with us, he calls his ministry, the ministry of all Christians, the ministry of reconciliation, a similar word to restoration. Reconciliation, restoration. And Paul says this ministry of reconciliation is a ministry that not just he does, not just Paul, but all of us who trust in Jesus have been called to this work. All who have already been reconciled to God through the saving work of Jesus are now called to be his ambassadors of that reconciling work, to be the heralds of good news in a world that is full of bad news. And that is a high and honorable call to be ambassadors of the king and his good news. It sounds so glorious and glamorous, and, and though it certainly is in one sense, that doesn't mean that it's always easy and fun. And Paul had a lot to say about that in this letter. If this letter is any indication, we see how the work of ministry, the work of serving Jesus and following him, can be very, very hard. So I think as we recap some of the high watermarks in this letter, we're going to see there's something to learn here from Paul about what it looks like to serve Jesus and the heart that serving Jesus requires. You see on, on your headline there that I put a heart to heal. I think that's the type of heart serving Jesus requires. A heart like his. A heart to heal, not to harm. A heart that does not intend to tear down, as Paul would say it, but to build up a heart that is after reconciliation and restoration, a heart to heal. And oftentimes having a heart to heal means opening up your own heart to possibly getting hurt for the good of others. And that's a sacrifice. And Paul has a lot to say about sacrifice in this letter. See, Paul makes it very clear that true gospel ministry requires sacrifice and suffering. Serving Jesus requires sacrifice and, yeah, suffering along the way. If it is gospel ministry, that means it points to the person the gospel is all about. It points to the person and work of Jesus. You know, the one who suffered and died so that all those who have sinned against him, who have spit on his face and profaned his name, he suffered and died so that they might have life. And Jesus said, 
If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Paul makes it very clear, true gospel ministry requires sacrifice and suffering. But the Corinthians didn't want to believe that. Their idea of, of the good life was following Jesus. Everything's going to go smoothly, right? You know, th- it reflected their culture's idea of what the good life looks like. Personal success, economic success, social success, whatever that looks like, personal, individual success, self-progression. Surely they thought following Jesus would, would result in such things. More money, more power. If God's on your side, you're going to get more fame because that's what was valued in their culture. And so Paul in this letter very much is laying out a different reality of what comes with following Jesus. It's not all sunshine and rainbows all the time. So let's look at words he has to say about this. Let's go back to chapter six. I think it'd be good for us to read this section here. We're gonna look at this beautiful run-on sentence for Paul. Everybody loves a good run-on sentence. And Paul was among the best at them that I think we've ever seen. He gets flying colors for his run-on sentences. So chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 4. But remember what Paul's doing here before we start reading. He's correcting their false idea of what gospel ministry looks like. They thought it was going to be easy and fun. He has a different idea in mind. He says, this is what serving Jesus actually looks like. This is what it means to be a servant of Christ. It looks like this. Chapter 6, verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. Here's what it looks like. In inflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. On the other hand, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor through slander and praise we are treated as imposters and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known as dying and behold we live as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Those last few lines especially show us both sides of the coin when it comes to following Jesus. On one hand, it can be really, really hard sometimes. And then on the other hand, there's no better place to be. Paul says he has nothing but at the same time possesses everything. How can he say that? Well, he can say that because he has Christ. And to have Christ is to have everything you need. And if you look back at verse four again, you can see what what really stands out for Paul when he says that we commend ourselves in every way. And before he lists this laundry list of sufferings, he says that he's able to do so by what? By great endurance. You see, his detractors wanted to use Paul's suffering as a way to discredit him. They thought, surely, if you are a God-appointed, God-inspired apostle, your life wouldn't look the way it does. You wouldn't suffer so much because God would bless your life. Paul saw it differently. 
He saw it the opposite way. He saw that his suffering was something that showed he was a legit servant of Christ because Christ suffered. And he asked me to follow him. And so I suffer too. And more than that, the fact that he was able to keep moving forward, to have this great endurance, showed that something greater than Paul was behind him. The power of God. His endurance pointed to the fact that the gospel is true. If it wasn't true, and the prize of seeing Jesus and that grace abounding to more and more people, if that wasn't true, then why would Paul keep going? It's worth the fight. It's worth the sacrifice and the suffering. But sometimes I think we wrongly think, like the Corinthians did, that if we're going about things the right way, if we're doing what God wants us to do, we're keeping our ducks in a row, then our lives are going to go smoothly because God surely will bless us and nothing will go wrong. Similarly, on the other hand, if something does go wrong in our life, then we can think, well, what did I do wrong? Surely I messed up somehow. If I, w- if I was following Jesus better, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. But that is exactly the type of thinking Paul is challenging here. The reality is that everyone in this broken world suffers. Christians, non-Christians. But what sets Christians apart, or at least what should set them apart, is their ability to faithfully endure, as Paul described it here to keep their feet following Jesus when their world and their flesh would tell them to stop and run the other direction because it's just too hard and costly. And that ability to faithfully endure when things aren't going well is not something that we have on our own power. Remember, we're the clay pots, right? We're so easily breakable, are we not? I think wimpy, might be a better word to describe us. I think we're kind of like my kids are right now. Uh, I have two kids, age three and a half and two. Bo just turned two. And uh, before I get into this, I just want you to know I'm having a great time, loving it, so don't mishear me here, okay? I love being a dad. But we're in this season when one of them just simply pokes the other one. It's just like trigger meltdown city immediately. Like, oh my gosh, he touched me. It's over. And it's not even when they get hurt or or something like that and things don't go the way they want. Sometimes it's just when when they don't get what they want. Kreiser's got this new line recently. Just started saying it. You you put some food in front of him or something that he's not real fond of and he goes, are you kidding me? (laughs) I wonder where he learned that. (laughs) The king of the universe. What can I say? I'm preaching to myself here, right? When things go wrong, the truth is my heart is just as prone to yours as yours is to say to God, are you kidding me? And to have a heart that doesn't say that when times are tough, but to say instead with a genuine spirit to really mean it, I trust you, Lord. This is really hard, but I trust you. Or to say, blessed be your name in the good times and the bad. To say, thank you, Lord for your many blessings. To say those things in the midst of real life stuff, the power to do that doesn't come from within us. It comes from him. You see the next point on your study sheet there, the surpassing power of God. Think about this. The surpassing power of God is behind the ministry and the ministers of the gospel. 
There's a reference there. Let's flip back a couple pages to chapter 4 to look at this. So chapter 4 is uh, the chapter and the verses where that inspired our sermon series title, God's Treasure in Jars of Clay. We're going to read that verse. And then this idea of strength and weakness. Chapter 4 is is all about it right here. Um, So you you can see we're going to pick it up in verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. But we're going to read all the way through 15. So this is a little bit of a lengthier section, but I think it's good for us to remember what we've learned. Sit here. Let the word of God minister to your heart as we read this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So yes, death is at work in us but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As those who have been shown the grace of God, we are to be those now who play a part in seeing that grace extend to more and more people, as Paul says here. And if you think, yeah, well, I'm just not really good at that whole evangelism thing, telling people about Jesus. I'm not well equipped for it. I'm not well prepared to do that. Maybe you think that way. Or maybe you think, yeah, you know, I might be okay at it, but I'm not worthy to do that because I'm just too messed up. Hear this. God does not call perfect people to be his workers. If you believe in Jesus, he's called you. He's called you to serve him with all your blemishes, all your scuff marks to come and serve him. And what this passage is teaching us is that we ought not to be ashamed of our blemishes and scuff marks and hiding them because God can use those things to show his strength. And we ought not to think that we don't have what it takes to do that because we do have what it takes. We have the very power of God working in us and through us, the surpassing power of God more specifically the power of the risen Christ. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is going to see to it that the gospel goes forth through broken people like you and me and the church will be built and the gates of hell nor anything else can stop that from happening. God will see to it. He'll see to it that grace extends to more and more people. All glory belongs to him. And there will come a time, there will, when all people, all people will see and acknowledge that glory that only belongs to God. Every knee will bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus is who this book says he is. That he's the Lord of all. And for those who belong to the Lord, they will share in his glory and be shown without end the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward them. But for those who had rejected him, they will be eternally and irreparably separated from the God of life. This is what makes serving Jesus so important. That there are many souls that do not know him yet. We've got like 400 kids coming to our day camp this year. What an opportunity that is. Think about our volunteers. Be praying for them. I mean, there's an invading army of 400 kids coming. Talk about suffering and sacrifice. Thank you so much for signing up to be there, to help, to point people to Jesus. This is a tremendous opportunity we have in front of us. And it's about investing in what really matters. That's what day camp is. It costs us money. It costs us all of us time who are being a part of it, effort, these types of things. We're investing in what really matters. And that's where I want to shift next here, to the importance of seeing, holding on to, and investing in what truly matters at the end of the day. This is what's called having an eternal perspective or an eternal mindset. And for this, we're going to stay right here in chapter 4 and look at these, these last couple verses. If you remember the sermon title for this passage when we looked at these verses originally, it's been a few months, but when we looked here, the, the sermon title was, We Must Fight for an Eternal Perspective. Because this, this what Paul's about to describe, is not something that we revert to uh, normally. It's not our normal routine to think this way. We have to fight to think this way. But here's what he says about having an eternal perspective. Chapter 4, starting in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. At our day camp training, we have some breakout sessions, and I lead one of those on how to make a difference as a leader and to try to encourage those who are leaders at our day camp. I put this picture up of a ripple in the water, like someone throw a rock into a pond and it starts a ripple. So you have that picture in your mind. My, my goal is to communicate to our volunteers that the effect of their service that week, no matter how small they may think it is, has the potential for lasting impact that can reach into eternity. Think about that. It's so beyond just helping one child or the children that they touch. God can use it to have a lasting impact that goes out far beyond what was originally intended or foreseen just like how a small rock's ripple can reach the other shore. We can't measure what we cannot see. And most often, in serving Jesus, we will not see just how God can use our obedience. He can use our our seemingly insignificant and, yes, imperfect steps of obedience to bless the hearts of many. The things that are unseen are eternal. 
And the things that are eternal are the things that really matter. And so as those who so easily get caught up with the present, we get caught up with things that don't really matter, we must be those who fight for an eternal mindset that thinks differently, a mindset that reorients our priorities so we change what we're focusing on, what we're investing our time and our energy and our resources in. And we want to invest those things in what really matters. At the end of the day, what really matters? It's the care of souls. And it starts with your own. Do you prioritize that? Paul says we should. But also, thinking with an eternal mindset can be a tremendous comfort to us who believe in Jesus. Because we know that this world is not heaven. But that heaven is real. And that one day, all these things, these hard things, that aren't the way they're supposed to be, that one day those things will pass away. And God will make all things new again. Our suffering here is temporary. Peace and rest will be forever. Does your heart long for that? Do you long to be with God in heaven? No more sin. No more. No more shame. The Bible says he will wipe away all our tears. Do you long for that? More importantly, I must ask, most importantly, do you know that you're going there? Today, do you know? Paul asks a very similar question in chapter 13 in our original text. So we'll turn back to our original text if you'd flip there with me. This letter is Paul talking about what really matters. Being in a right relationship with God or not. And this is what he says, chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. If we want to talk about what really matters, the stakes cannot get higher than heaven and hell. And what makes the difference about which place you end up is whether or not you are in a right relationship with the one true God. And this is not something you can conjure up for yourself. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that. The requirement to be in perfect standing with God is to be perfect. To not even once fail to love God with all your heart. We can't even keep the first commandment. No, our hope is only Jesus. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He knew we could never do that. He didn't even wait for us to admit that we have a problem. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, in the midst of our sin, Jesus went to the cross and he died there for us. Because the requirement to enter heaven is perfect righteousness. Paul says in this letter that he who knew no sin, Jesus, never sinned. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin on his shoulders. He paid the price that we deserve to pay. And he paid it all. And because he lived a perfect life that we couldn't, we get, if we trust in him, his righteousness upon our shoulders. So that when God looks at us, 
who trusts in Jesus, he doesn't see all the wrong we've ever done. He doesn't see how dirty we are. He sees how perfect Jesus is. Paul says that in this letter. And now he says, examine yourselves. The most important question you can ask yourself today or any day is this. Is Jesus Christ in you? Do you know and trust him as your savior? You need a savior. He's the only one. Do you know him and trust him as the Lord of all? Even the Lord of your life. Nothing else is more important than this. And I think this letter really bears that out. I think for us to appreciate what this letter is all about, we have to to take a step back a bit and remember not just the words within it, but what those words reflected in real time, in a real place. Paul was a real person writing to real people in this church. Souls that really mattered. And Paul's heart for them is reflected. You know, he wasn't just writing for kicks and giggles. He knew what really mattered. And he'd been on a hard journey with these people. And like any relationship, they've run into conflict, significant conflict. They've attacked his character. Still, Paul relentlessly pursued their hearts because he knew that's what really mattered. He didn't invest 18 months living with them for nothing. He didn't carefully and tearfully pen numerous letters for no reason at all, just like this one. He didn't fervently pray for them constantly and once dropped everything he had going on to come and see them, traveling across the known world at the time, essentially. A big deal to come and show up and see them when they needed help. He didn't do all that for nothing. And despite all of that, their relationship remained fractured. And this made Paul's heart ache. And again, it's not so much that Paul had his feelings hurt, but that his heart pained for the souls, for the souls of the Corinthians, because they were being swept up by false teachers and a false gospel. His heart ached for theirs because he wanted them to be in a right relationship with the true God and the true Jesus. And he knew that's what really mattered most. And apparently it mattered enough for Paul to refuse giving up on them and writing this letter. And no matter how frustrating it was that he couldn't seem, they couldn't seem to get things right, no matter how many times he, had, he needed to repeat himself again and again, no matter how many times he had to put himself in a place where he knew he was going to get suffered and persecuted for the sake of the gospel, no matter how much they were going to insult his character and come against his credentials, no matter how much it hurt that none of them would defend him, even though they knew him, he would not give up. Their souls were too important. What work could matter more? And the answer is there's, there's none. There's nothing more important than being in a right relationship with God and there's no work better than seeing to it that that grace abounds to more and more people. And if you're here this morning and you don't know and trust Jesus, you aren't in a right relationship with God. The call in this letter is the call to you today. Be reconciled to God today. Be reconciled to the God who made you and loves you. You've been given an invitation purchased by his blood shed for you. Don't reject him. Don't reject him who offers it. Say yes, I believe today. 
I would love to talk with you more about that. If you want to talk more about that, come find me after service. I'll be right over here. But let's close this morning. I'll ask you to stand and we'll pray together. We're going to pray as we usually do to close. But then before you go, I'm going to read Paul's final words here to these believers in Corinth so long ago as a benediction for us this morning. But first, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, the sinners that we are, for a God like you, that you are the way you are, full of love and compassion and mercy. And you extend grace to us. We do not deserve your kindness, and yet you offer it so readily. Indeed, as we sang together, our sins are many, your mercy is more. We thank you for your mercy shown most clearly and beautifully in the person of Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, would you open up the eyes of our heart to see Jesus for who he truly is, to see our situations for how they truly are. We are weak and needy, and we need Jesus every minute of every day. Help us to remember that as we go from here. Change us in this way, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.